Well, let me tell you up front where we're going um, with this. Um, that there's nothing else to take from the passage, but where we want to focus a bit of our attention is this. To fear is to be human, and to be fearless is to be God. To fear is to be human, and to be fearless is to be God. So let me start with a question. Are you fearful this week, this day, tonight? Well, if you ask me that question, I'd probably say, yes, but I think I might struggle to say exactly where my fears originate. I may not have very specific things in my mind, but it would resonate with me that I have an indwelling fear. It's more of a sensation than a specific pain. And then as we think about the spheres of our lives, sphere of my life, we can get to see some specifics. Possibly it is somebody at work who could intimidate you. Somebody who has that power. Might it be for your safety? Have you ever feared for yourself? Or think about those you love. Do you fear something would happen to them? You see, as humans, we cannot control our circumstances. We fear other people. We fear the future. We may fear that we're not good enough. And possibilities play on our minds. And as a result, we experience a constant background tone of fear, just a slight hum. Sometimes it can be overwhelming, but do we ever eradicate it completely? Now, I want to suggest that the human condition is beset by fear because we are not God. Because to fear is to be human. But I want us to see tonight that we have a saviour who is not. By trusting in God, our fears are laid. And if we do not trust in God, they will not be allayed fully. We will have to deal with our fears alone. Now, Jesus Christ is fearless. But is that entirely correct? I just want to put in one quick caveat before we move on. And the caveat is this. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 3, we read that the Lord Jesus Christ, the foretold um, king that Isaiah predicts, this man, his fear, his delight of the Lord, he will delight in the fear of the Lord. So when we talk about fear, we are not saying that Jesus was absent any fear. He had a healthy fear for the Lord. Now we could, we could expand at length what godly fear is look, looks like, but we would need so much time, I doubt we'd be gone before midnight. So we'll put that to one side, and let's look at Jesus Christ. I want to see what this fearlessness looks like in practice. And the, the context for what we're going to look at tonight is very important, because there has been what we might describe as a gathering storm in Mark's Gospel. And it starts with the healing of the paralyzed man. A few weeks ago, we were looking at when the Pharisees, it first struck the Pharisees when Jesus had the boldness to say, your sins are forgiven. 
And what did the Pharisees do? They thought, and we know that from the passage in chapter 2, because what they thought, Jesus discerned. They were outraged, but they didn't say anything, but Jesus answered their thoughts. Then later in chapter 2, in verse 16, we learn that Jesus dined with sinners. And what do the Pharisees do? They speak not to Jesus, but now they verbalize their thoughts to the disciples. So why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So we've moved from thought to word. And then as Ian preached last night, there is a controversy over the Sabbath, and the disciples are eating on the Sabbath, picking grain. And this time the Pharisees' words are to the disciples. So why do you do this? Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Well, tonight, matters come to a head. We go from thought to word, and we will eventually see deeds. Tonight, we reach a tipping point. Tonight, we are done with questions from the Pharisees, but we move to actions. And the tipping point is right here in tonight's passage, so let's keep it open. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Let's work our way through the narrative, which I think is very helpful to understand what's going on. So verse 1, we read, Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. So another time, Jesus is back in the synagogue. There is nothing unusual about Jesus teaching in the synagogue. We know that he's been in the synagogue in Capernaum, and he's been throughout Galilee. He's been in synagogues. This is not unusual. And yet Mark draws our attention to it. Why does he do that? There's a man. We don't know what the shriveled hand was. It It is a deformity of the hand. It's clearly apparent. And what we have here is an ailment which is not that serious compared with some ailments. Remember, a a few chapters later, Jesus raises a girl from the dead. A disabled hand does not really compare with being dead. So why is this pipsqueak of human suffering in the symphony of misery, why is this event going to be such a, such a flashpoint? Life is not at stake. Why is this relevant? Well, in verse 2, we don't have to wait too long. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees, these are the them who were looking. The Pharisees, and we know that from verse 24 that started the conversation. It may be the same day that Jesus is now in the synagogue, the same day as the thing um, and the picking grain on the Sabbath. And what the Pharisees are looking to do is to accuse Jesus. This is not looking for some moral compromise. This is not looking to pick a fight. The accusation is about a legal challenge that they want to mount. Now, a quick detour in terms of what the legal challenge is. This isn't um, necessarily a, a legal challenge about Mosaic law. Mosaic law says you shall not work on the Sabbath. But from the time of Moses, there had grown a huge burden of regulations about what constitutes work on the Sabbath. And this had been worked out in minute detail. And it has equal sanctity with the Mosaic law. It's simply the outworking of what Moses had taught. 
So what they want to do now is mount a legal challenge to say you're breaking the law, your particular actions today are not lawful. Now I want you to imagine what we have now. Have you ever seen one of those magnificent nature documentaries? And the camera in high definition focuses on a lone impala on the savannah lands of Africa. It's like a gazelle. And there is this animal, this vulnerable animal, just grazing on the grassland. It's peaceful. And it's quiet. And the camera now pans to a big cat. We see the leopard. The leopard is motionless. But now what you have in your mind is the possibility for drama. Jesus has walked into the synagogue. What will he do? Because the big cat is waiting. A drama is set to unfold. Threat lurks. That is what we're getting in verse 2. And the big cat's eyes are locked on target. Well, they look like a big cat. They've got the power of law behind them. And Jesus, simply walking into a synagogue, is just a man. How's it all going to go? Notice that what we see in verse 2 is that they are looking to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. You see, we've gone from curiosity. What is this man capable of? But this growing picture that Mark is establishing for us, they know that he could. The question is not, could you heal on the Sabbath? The Pharisees are now bent on finding, will you? Are you going to do this on the most sacred of days in the week? Are you going to work on the Sabbath? They know he has authority. The question is whether the Son of God will break their rules. So what's he going to do? Is Jesus going to play it low? Is he going to do the diplomatic thing? Is he going to say, meet me out back? We can sort this out. Or how about we meet tomorrow? Because it's Sabbath. I don't need to do this today. There's as many days in the week that we could get this done. It doesn't have to be today. What's Jesus going to do? Well, let's find out. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Now imagine being a spectator that day. What are you thinking? Maybe you expect the man to be healed. Maybe you expect there's going to be a big debate. I'll tell you one thing. I think if that was me, I would not do what Jesus did. I don't think I'd have had the courage, knowing the forces railed against me, to say, stand up. And Jesus clearly knows the thoughts in their minds. He's not under any illusion as to what the impact of his actions are going to have. And if you're sat in the congregation today, you're probably thinking to yourself, oh my word, he's going to do it. 
rather him than me. Eyes down. It's showtime. What happens next? There's a bit of a bend in the road next. Verse 4. Then Jesus asked them, that's the Pharisees, Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. You see, if you're expecting Jesus to heal this man, suddenly you're thinking again. There's a broader point being made. Into the tension comes another question. Jesus is not going to heal the man yet. There's something else that needs to be done. He could have simply said at this point, stretch out your hand, but he paused. We've got this question. And this is a quest, one question with two applications. Here is the first question that he asked. Is it lawful to do good or evil? Now notice he's going straight to the question that the Pharisees are asking. Is this lawful? And Jesus says, this is the question. Is it lawful to do good or evil? It's as if Jesus is saying, you know that I can do this, but I'm not going to do it just yet. Jesus knows that he has good to do. And he says, he be like taunts the Pharisees. Your rules will present a problem if I choose to do good, won't they? They're the only thing standing between me doing a good act today versus leaving this man suffering. The second question is more difficult to understand because this does not relate to the man. No one is about to kill the man and no one is about to save his life. The second part of the question, to save life or to kill, that's not the drama that's unfolding. The man's life is not in danger. The law would have allowed life in danger to be saved and he poses this question which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil to save life or to kill and what happens they were silent the looks Glances, squirms, the fury at Jesus for putting them on the spot, and the fury back again at the Pharisees. We don't know how long that silence lasts. They said nothing. Verse 5. We continue, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Now notice what's changed here. The Pharisees start off looking closely at Jesus. And the tables are turned, and Jesus is now looking closely at them. But he doesn't look with accusation. 
Jesus is looking with wrath and anger. And of course, at one level, we would understand this. This this young challenger, this itinerant preacher, is having a clash with the powers that be. But is that all that's happening? Is what Jesus is experiencing simply a sentiment? I think it is a sentiment. It is anger. It is wrath. But if we now look at Matthew, Matthew chapter 3, we see another use of the same word to the same people. And this is what Jesus says. Who warned you to flee of the coming wrath? You see, what we read here has more weight than simply Jesus being angry. This anger will end in judgment. This wrath is the wrath of God against those who dare to accuse God of doing wrong. But the judgment is delayed. The judgment is not to take place now on the Pharisees. And we know that because when Jesus comes, he pronounces the year of the Lord's favor. That passage that Jesus preaches on in the synagogue that comes from Isaiah 61. He says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he ends by saying, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And it stops. But if you look at Isaiah, where Jesus stops is on this half of verse 3. And the day of vengeance of our God. And that is not what Jesus is here on his first coming to deliver. His first coming is about mercy. And that is the day that the Pharisees lived under, and that is the day that we live under. That we live in the year of the Lord's favor. But that will not last, friends. What we see in this passage is exactly that. The pronouncement of wrath, but not the final judgment on those who would dare to accuse God. Instead, good is done And mercy is shown, even to the Pharisees that day. Now, before we move on to the final verse, I want us to look at a fairly passive character in the narrative so far. And that's the man with the hand. All we know, he's told to stand up and stretch out. Sounds like a modest workout, doesn't it? Stand up, stretch out. I think he may well have wanted to meet Jesus. We know that because he's in the synagogue when Jesus arrives. Did he arrive early to make sure he could be there? And his simple obedience suggests this is take a surprise. He is a willing participant in what Jesus wants to do that day. But did he want to stand up? Would anyone want to stand up when Jesus says, stand? And if you have a deformity, doubly, would you want to stand up? Would you want to be put in the middle of this simmering controversy about the Sabbath? Might he have thought, don't put me in the middle of this argument. I'm here for a very specific reason. And it's not to win your battles about what we can do on the Sabbath. Remember the hand? That's what I'm here for. I think he may have found this difficult. But his simple obedience 
is a wonderful model. Just because he wants healing does not make it easy to stand up in front of everyone and to stretch out your hand. What, so we can all take a good look at my hand? No. Because God has the power to do good. Well, how do we respond when God wants us to do difficult things? Things of which we are afraid. They may be for our good, but we find them difficult. Where are we called to simple obedience? Stand up. Stretch out. Simple, but difficult commands. Well, what do you think this man would say to you, to me, struggling to be obedient in all these things? What do you think he would say? I think he'd say, do it. I think he'd say, Jesus is worth the risk. I think he'd tell us that those are safe hands that envelop us when we are. Don't look at the Pharisees. Don't look at the opposition railed against you. Look at Jesus. Get so close to Jesus that you cannot see anything else. Keep him central so that the opposition is not filling your mind and your gaze. Because when he's as close as that, fears shrink. When Jesus is close, the fears subside. Now maybe we would want everything to end there. Verse 5 is a great high point on which to end a, uh, an event in Jesus' life. The test is complete. Healing is accomplished. Time to lock up shop. But Mark puts the kicker verse in that we end with tonight. Verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Well, as we learned this morning, as I'm sure you're aware, we're nearly 12 months since Russia invaded Ukraine. And at the time of the invasion... You may remember that President Zelensky elected to stay in Ukraine, to stay in Kiev. <clears throat> there was talk of him forming a government in exile, far safer, far safer to be than stuck in Ukraine. His decision to stay was widely anticipated to be the equivalent of signing his own death warrant. In fact, just four days after the invasion, in a televised address to the EU leaders, he told them bluntly, this may be the last time you see me alive. He was uncertain that his country's limited resources would be sufficient to withstand the might of Russia. Of course, history proved us him wrong. Russian might was not that effective as he feared, and indeed his country's resistance was greater than he imagined. Is that what we have here? Do we see Jesus simply giving up his life against a force that was ultimately greater than him? Will he win? Will he live? Will he succeed? We don't know. But he's a plucky hero for doing it anyway. Is that what we have? Jesus sticking out his chin against a, a more powerful force? 
to achieve nothing than to die at the hand of religious fundamentalists? Can you imagine Jesus walking out of the synagogue saying, this may be the last time you see me alive. I want to say Jesus knows exactly what he's doing and he does it fearlessly. He's not fearless because he doesn't understand the forces railed against him. He does this very visibly and very publicly and unambiguously on a Sabbath, knowing full well what was going to happen. He's not fearless because he can't piece together the political winds in front of him. He's fearless because he's God. Remember when Goliath was shouting taunts at the Israelite army. The Philistines were assembled. They had their champion prize fighter at the front of the queue. He says, send me a man weak to each other. Do you remember what the Israelite army felt? In 1 Samuel 17, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So are we the plucky David that's going to go into battle? Or are we the Israelite army that need a saviour, a friend, and a king? You see, it's all very well to think that we might be the heroic ones. But the fact is that we are not God and that our fears are very much part of our human makeup. We know that we do not have ultimate control over people, places, circumstances. Life can do things that threaten us. But we belong to one who is fearless. We can be fearless without God. And if we try that, we're building imaginary walls around us. But to place your hope in the one who can stare down his enemies who can do battle with kingdoms and principalities. Trusting in him, that is where we will find peace. You see, Jesus was no victim in this. We see in this passage, Jesus' ability to be strong because he is God. And he does not fear mankind's rules, mankind's consequences. And the best they can do, is secretly walk away and plot his demise. And you know what? By chapter 14, they still couldn't do it. It took a betrayal from Jesus' own apostles to achieve what they could not hatch a plan to do. And in doing so, God effected the greatest salvation the world will ever see. So as we look out, fearfully on a world we can't control, we can confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is not only willing to act for us, he is powerful to act for us. This friend of sinners reigns supreme. The one who fearlessly faces down his enemies, who counts obedience to his father of the consequences of people that hate him. This man has you for eternity. And not one of us will be lost. 
and in him we may fear not. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the goodness of your Son. Father, we thank you that he fought for us. And Father, we thank you that he does so fearlessly, comprehensively, and eternally. And Father, that same Savior, that same King, reigns supreme. Lord, we thank you tonight that the throne is not empty. And while we live in this fragile sphere, we pray, Lord, that the vision of your Son will fill us so much that the fears will shrink and subside in the face of one so lovely and so powerful. Amen. Well, as the musicians...